Hello everyone and welcome to Life in a Bubble with me, Oliver Dingley. This is the podcast where we get deep and personal to some of Ireland's most talented people as they share some of their most significant moments. So today's guest on Life in a Bubble is a camogie superstar, broadcaster and columnist. Since amassing numerous accolades in the sporting world, our guest has become a well-known face on Irish TV. She even danced her way to the 2018 final of Dancing with the Stars. So today's guest is the fantastic Anna Gary. Anna, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Oliver, for inviting me. Now, it's it's uh, weird for me because I feel like I know you because I see you on TV all the time. <laughs> I uh, listen to your radio show on a weekly basis. <laughs> and I actually watched uh, an episode of Ireland's Fittest Family recently. Oh, really? And I, kn- I know your background is a sporty background. How competitive do you get on that show? Oh, you know what? Believe everything you see on Ireland's Fittest <laughs> Family. I am as competitive um, as all the other coaches are. I think for us... Because just to give people a bit of context, we're filming for maybe 12, 14 hours a day. You're mic'd up for the entire time. Um, and I suppose as four sports people where sport is our background, you know, you very quickly forget about the TV cameras and the mics when it's competition. Because ultimately you are there with your family competing in something. And, you know, one family might go through, one might go home. So you want your family to win. You want to win. So we do get very animated. We get very passionate. There is rivalries that exist between the coaches. Who's, but who's the who's the most competitive out of you all? Oh, that's a very difficult one. Cause I think we're all extremely competitive. <laughs> I would say... Davy Fitzgerald is probably the most animated. Davy wears his heart in his sleeve and he's a wonderful character and wonderful sports person. But he just wants it so much. Like when his family wins, he would be nearly doing cartwheels. When his family loses, he would be down on the ground banging his fist off the off the sod. <laughs> um, and I think entertainment wise people love that you know because it's, it's a character re- well it's real and it's raw and it's authentic and often we see now managers particularly in sport where they're on the sidelines in their suits and you get very little um, reaction off them you get very little emotion and I think it's a lost art personally I think it's you know I know sometimes people might say that Davey might be a bit too animated but he shows how badly he wants it and I think there's um there's something really endearing about that. I think that's why he's loved in Ireland's fitness family more than any other coach. You know, we're all kidding ourselves. Davey's probably the, the favourite in everybody's home. Uh, you're all fantastic. And I, and I agree, actually, in sport in general. You look at soccer, some of the press conferences afterwards, just the the constant avoidance. Often I think with the likes of Davey, I think there's method in their madness. Because by taking the focus off the players and placing the focus on themselves, it's almost, you know, it's taking the spotlight off the players, it's taking the pressure off, it's particularly if there's been a bad performance or a loss. And then the headlines the next year about them as opposed to their players. Now, it often means that they have to take a bit of a hammering, um, you know, in, in the public eye. But often um, it's it's for their, the team's best interests, you know. And I think I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that sport is meant to be entertainment. Um, is, and I yeah. think, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm very serious um, about my sport. I always was um, about camogie. But... I do think we need to sometimes be reminded that it, you know, it's not life or death. It is entertainment. And, you know, sometimes it's good to be able to laugh about something and it's good. And I think what happens now is, and I suppose having been a player for so long and having done interviews and now being on the other side of the mic where you're the interviewer trying to extract a good story or a good answer and not in any way, you know, to to get a sensational headline or to make a, a player 
um, say something that they'd regret but it's just more to say something real say how they really feel the managers nearly stop that now they stop that real answering of questions that they're you know you almost these learned off lines come out of, of players and it's a, it is a protection mechanism because you know, I suppose managers are very conscious that they don't want their players in the papers the next day, um, you know, giving ammunition to the opposition, going, oh, well, this person said that, you know, they're the best team in the competition. They obviously think that, you know, we're not good, so we'll show them. And I suppose that's sometimes where media can twist um, words and they can twist what people say. So I think there's a responsibility on both sides of a microphone to bring a little bit of realness. And I think, you know, players and managers alike in sport would probably be a bit more honest with media if they felt there was a trust there. Yeah, felt comfortable. Yeah, and I think there has to be a trust there and I think that's one of the things that I like to bring now when I work on, as I said, the other side of the microphone um, working in the media, whether it's as a pitch side reporter or if you're interviewing somebody on our sports show Pumped Up Kicks on Today FM. Shameless plug there. Um, <laughs> it's a great show. Yeah. I'd, I'd watch it. I'd listen to it. If I, but it's if lovely because what we there. try and do is we let people speak. We, we don't try them back them into a corner. I would always be very aware of the fact that when I was a player, I wanted to be interviewed by somebody that didn't want to back me in to corner or say something you know force me to say something that could be taken out of context the trust came from when you knew that person wanted you know you to walk away happy from that interview and that there wouldn't be any repercussions afterwards with your manager or with whoever and I suppose I always bear that in mind having been a player for so long that when I'm interviewing players or managers wherever it is you know, I'm aware of the trust in that relationship that still needs to be intact when you walk away because that to me is really important and I think, you know, we had Sonia Sullivan, um, we interviewed her a few weeks ago and like Sonia's an icon in, in the world of Irish sport in general. It doesn't just have to be in athletics um, and I met her at the RT Sports Awards before Christmas and um, I was trying to encourage Shane Larry to come on and speak with us in 2020 because obviously Shane is such a wonderful character <laughs> and sports person and Sonia was there at the same time and Sonia turned around to him and said I actually I really enjoyed my chat with um, with Deck and Anna and it was really relaxed and um, you know they allowed me to speak and you know, their questions were very general and open I mean that was one of the greatest compliments that could be given to me because that was specifically what I tried to do I think sometimes you know journalists have their role they have to ask the hard questions sometimes you know and sometimes if there's a, a scandal or something to be uncovered you know, those questions sometimes are harsh and they do need to get the answers. But you don't need to be like that all the time, you know. And I think that's where, you know, the trust can sometimes be um, be broken down between between two people when there's a microphone in the middle. They do need to understand your reasoning. And often, if I could give a little bit of a tip to someone, look, I have to ask you this question. I'm giving you a heads up now. You've got 30 seconds to answer it. Again, it's just, you know, it's a, there's a little bit of leeway and I would look to the likes of, we'll say Jackie Hurley and sports broadcasting, Marty Morrissey, who have a fabulous relationship with the people they interview. Um, and I've tried to emulate that. And uh, I think, you know, I've loads to learn, but I think having that advantage of having been a player, um, sometimes it's good to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. You've had the bug for coaching mm. on Ireland's Fitness Family. Would you go into coaching Camogie? You know, it's been asked of me. Um, I'm not prepared to fully retire from Camogie yet in playing terms. <laughs> and I, I don't think I would have the um, the capacity to be one of these, you know, player managers. But I think down the line... Like hard work. Oh, I don't know how people do it. Like, what? I just, I really have admiration for somebody that can compartmentalise and be a player and a manager. But it's something I suppose I would... Um, be interested in. I don't know what I'd be any good at it. I, I, again, I do think that not every 
top class player or not any not every player is a good manager and equally you'll see some managers they've never made it as a player but that doesn't mean that they weren't a, they're not a brilliant manager so I think I'd probably need to dip my toe into it um, in some way and see if I was any good I think I would probably be the exact same as a manager um, as I am a player in that if I'm giving something my commitment I'm giving it a 100% commitment and I suppose at the moment when you're self-employed and you're working like that Ireland's for this family and you're all over the country working very unorthodox hours it's very difficult to give that commitment so I would like to think that if I was in that position um, down the line it would be something I would love to dip my toe into I think in Ireland's fittest family, the greatest challenge for me is being on the sideline because you can work with your family, you can give them advice or you can help them through something, you can talk tactics, but you're kind of helpless when it's ready, steady, go because you can't do anything. And I, I've been at times, you know, you've nearly been tempted to <laughs> yeah. run in and just give them a little bit of a lift over the wall um, and you can't do that. And I think that is, um, it's a very challenging aspect of management, particularly if you were a player. Because when you're a player, you have the opportunity um, to take some control or some ownership or some accountability of the outcome. But when you're a manager, you can talk all you want, but ultimately the action has to come from the people that you're managing. And I think, again, there has to be a great trust, but also you have to stay as calm as possible. And as people see in Ireland's fittest family, sometimes I'm not, I'm not the calmest person. So <laughs> patience, they say, is a virtue. So it, that's something hard. I, I'd have hard. to work on that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's hard. I always feel most sorry for parents mm. kind of sitting there in the stands and just being so helpless and yes. willing you to do so well. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't envy Poor that referees anyone. as well at times, I have to oh, say that now, because sometimes people get, you know, very animated and um, passionate on the sidelines and sometimes they get the brunt of it. It's like, my Johnny didn't hit. What is he saying? He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, it's a difficult <laughs> job to be a referee. I'd probably be a manager before I'd be a referee. I'd put it to you yeah, like that. I wouldn't envy those, especially you look at your, your soccer referees. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, they get a bad deal. And GA referees, because the speed of the game now has increased so much. It's a lot of ground um, for one person to cover and I suppose it's something that I personally have been in favour in for quite a while as I think there should be two referees on a pitch because if you think a puck out of a slitter the speed of a ball I mean unless you're Usain Bolt you are not getting to you know he, to be he, where he the ball struggle. lands yeah it's I think it is quite a difficult job and it, it's I suppose for me good refereeing and I'm, 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 I'm going on a tangent here for a second but it's so important. Any refereeing is so important to the game that they're refereeing. And really top quality standard refereeing is really important. So you have to have good, competent people in those jobs. And unless we make refereeing a little bit more enticing, you know, a little bit more attractive, well, then we're not going to encourage younger people to get into the world of refereeing. And I think making their job a little bit easier is really important. You know, they have so much to do, especially GA referees. You know, they were trying, they're trying to take the time. They're trying to watch off the ball incidents. They're trying to watch the flight of the ball. Um, I think having two would probably help that situation. So Me and my multitasking would uh, seriously <laughs> get, get stuck I've learned right to there. be a good multitasker, thankfully, down to the years. Because I, I, when I was in Leaving Cert, um, that was actually the very first year back, all the way back in 2005, when I started on the Cork Senior Camogie team for the first time. So multitasking and time management became something I had to really focus on because I would come home from school at half four. I'd be in the car for training um, at half five in Cork City. We'd arrive at seven o'clock, train for two hours, get back into the car home by, by maybe about 11, doing that maybe three times a week during your leave and start year when you're also trying to study. action-packed event. Yeah, but again, you just, you learn to manage your time, you know, um, and you learn, it's like when I would say to people, 
nowadays we're in a world where everything is busy and people are always saying I don't have the time it's like do you not have the time or do you just not want to make the time because there is a big difference like when people say about exercise I just don't have the time to exercise and I say right okay well if you break down your day you know do you have time to scroll, for example, on Instagram and social media? Far too much time. It's like, well, if you've time, to, my mentality is if you've time to scroll, you've time to sweat. Um, and even if you eased yourself in, maybe, you know, if you're scrolling, maybe you're doing it on a stationary bike in a gym or, you know, something like that, whereas it's easy to get your exercise in. And then you'll actually find the benefits of exercise will be so much better than the scrolling is. But I think we have to, we all have to make time, um, I think, in our lives. And I think sport is really helped me to understand that that time management, you know. Mm, definitely. And camogie, I guess, is where the heart yeah. lies for you. So uh, that leads us on to our first photo. Mm-hmm. OK, so my first photo is when I was captain of the Cork Under-16 team all the way back in 2003. Um, and we won the All-Ireland. We beat Galway. And that that same month, it was in August, and that same month I was invited onto the Cork Senior Camogie panel um, to be a member of the, the panel. And it was like a dream come true because, um, you know, I've been playing camogie since I was five years old. And to be honest about it, I had been a very average camogie player. And actually, to be honest, being saying I was average is paying me a compliment. Um, I was <laughs> average until I was about 12 or 13. Um, I just, I really... I think I was nervous. I I, I kind of lacked the, maybe a little bit of belief in myself. And I, that wasn't from a lack of encouragement from my trainers and parents. They were all brilliant. But I was nearly afraid to make mistakes. Whereas we went into secondary school and I had really, really encouraging coaches in, in secondary school as well. We're like, who cares if you make a mistake? Everybody makes mistakes. It's just about how you deal with that mistake. So I started developing that mentality and it really just completely springboarded me into a completely different level um, playing camogie and being I was 12 years old on the under 16 camogie team, 13 years old on the under 18 camogie team. And then, yeah, having just turned 16 in July and all of a sudden being catapulted into the world of senior inter-county camogie was, you know, even now I think, wow, really? They wanted me? And now, like I was sitting in a dressing room with girls that were my heroes, you know? I mean, I I was never going to play a part in the 2003 campaign, but even to be there, even to see how they worked and how diligent they were and their preparation and pucking around with them. I mean, it was it was a dream come true. And I think it really, for me, it taught me a lot about working towards something you're passionate about. You know, Camogie had always been my passion up to that point. But I think when I hit the, the Cork Senior Intercounty team, I realised being good enough or being talented enough isn't enough. You have to have the work ethic to match. You have to be willing to do things that your opposition won't do. You know, you have to be prepared to do things and put the time in that people and people won't see bar you. Um, and it taught me a lot that my confidence comes from my preparation. So the more diligent I was with my, my preparation, the better I actually performed. And I've actually used that life lesson in every aspect of my life I use it in college I use it in when I you know in my work career when I graduated from college and got my first job in the height of the economic recession I then had to use it when I decided after seven years to pack my job in and just become self-employed <laughs> but it definitely was it was like it was a, a, a phrase that a manager in secondary school said to me was a hard work will be talent if talent doesn't work hard and I think it's work ethic is everything. And I learned it when I transitioned from being Cork under 16 captain to senior. And did that come natural to you? Or did it take a while to kind of, you move from, I mean, this is not just a small step. This is a huge mm. progression into what is a very professional outlet of yeah. people. And in, I suppose in an adult world as well, you know, because um, up until that point, you were only playing with your peers. 
Uh, I think it did come naturally to me, albeit there was loads of frustration. You know, I'm the type of person that if I want to do something well, I want to do it now. You know, <laughs> like, okay, I, I, you know, you have to have that interim period where you have the the progress and the, you know, the improving. And I suppose the, the element of frustration has never left me that I always kind of want to be really good at something straight it's away. it's always good when it goes right though. It Ooh, is. And I feeling. suppose the competitor in me always perseveres. You know what, I mean, my dad is a very competitive person and I can thank him for my competitive spirit that, you know, all the way back to my early days when I first started playing sport, we'd go out the back and we had a game hit the drain pipe, much to my mother's horror because we cracked that drain pipe a good few times. Then he was like, you know, hit the drain pipe and, you know, I used to cross country when I was younger and when I was training and I'd run back the fields because we grew up on a farm my dad would run with me and nearly took personal satisfaction from beating me you know but it was like come on catch me you know constantly pushing me outside my comfort zone so I think the competitor in me always knew that you know strive to be better you know strive to be the best you can be strive to fulfil your potential so it allowed me then when I was I suppose in an environment where people were pushing themselves all the time it, it almost rubs off on you and that's why I would be a firm believer now in my role as a performance coach is surround yourself with people that you want to be like if you want to be a really you know hardworking, positive supportive person will surround yourself with those people and I was completely immersed in that environment so I suppose it was always impossible for me to not push myself to be better So photo number two for me the one I've picked is a picture of you 11 years later uh, winning and holding up the trophy oh, after yes. an All-Ireland final yeah, it's it was probably the, the culmination of years of hard work and it's kind of it's still I actually have tingles, would you believe, even looking at the picture because it's me lifting the O'Duffy cup over my head in front of the Hogan stand, having climbed the steps and lifted the cup as captain of the Quark Mug team. It was an epic final against Kilkenny. We were five points down at half time and for us to come back was come back. extraordinary. Um but I think as well like that was a dream come true. Because for anybody, you know, what that's part of a team to be captain of that team and to lift the cup, you know, and win the All-Ireland final and be the greatest team in Ireland was, you know, it was what people only dream of. And there's so many fantastic sports people that have entered and left Croke Park without ever saying they could do that, you know. And for me to have done it with a group of girls I'd played with, a lot of them actually back since the early 2000s, it was, you know, they were friends. They weren't just teammates. And, you know, a lot of us were coming towards the the, the latter stages of our careers. And, uh to have won was extraordinary and to have lifted the cup in front of a sea of blue and white it was it was quite surreal I think considering that like you said 11 years previous I was coming from quite humble beginnings you know even going back maybe 15 years to like you know previous um, I was a very you know timid kind of young Camogie player that probably had like any other person had a lot of self-doubt and lacking in belief so to have got to that point um, was quite extraordinary and I suppose it was just a reminder to me as well that about like it's about perseverance it's about you know f- like working towards something and we'd we'd lost more All-Irelands than I'd won at that stage but it doesn't stop you like every year you have to go again and I suppose any sports person or anyone that wants something will tell you that you're not going to succeed the first, second, third maybe even the 50th time you try but it's about always going and keeping going and kind of never giving up and that All-Ireland final was really a testament to that that even though we were five points down we kind of we never gave up and we we dragged and we clawed our way back into that final. It's the most fantastic photo. And mm. for, for any international listeners for this, how would you describe Croke Park? Because in Ireland, it's such a, a huge place. I mean, yeah. I my first experience of going to Croke Park was actually to go watch the script, unfortunately. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I've been to a few games there as well. And it's the most amazing arena. So it is. to it's stand it. on that field. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, Croke Park, it's the theatre of dreams. Dreams can be made there or dreams can be shattered there. So it can be the best place in the world, but it can also be the loneliest place in the world. Like I stood in Croke Park back in 2007. We lost to Wexford in the All-Ireland final and I can still remember feeling heartbroken. I really was. It was crushing. Um, the game hadn't gone our way from the, from the start. We hadn't performed as well and it really I don't and I don't know why because when it's a team sport the beauty is that you kind of you, you get to share the victory but you also get to share the defeat so it's not you know the blame often doesn't rest on just one person you can be really disappointed in yourself and feel you've underperformed but everyone's kind of in it together but I felt a real sense of disappointment in myself that day um, and it really had a heavy impact on me I think to the point actually where back 2007 I actually took the year out in 2008 um, and took an opportunity with my college the University of Limerick to go abroad and, and um, do a work placement abroad so and I kind of because I needed to ignite that passion back from for Komogi and I did and thankfully I went on to, to lift the cup a few years later but it's just Croke Park you just look around and now obviously you know there was only 30 odd thousand people that day and only. you can yeah, exactly <laughs> but when you think lot. about an, an All-Ireland hurling day there's 83,000 people yeah. and it's packed to the rafters but even at that with 30,000 the noise levels were insane you couldn't hear your teammates standing 10 feet away from you on the pitch so everybody had to be really clear of their job like we went we went through even the the ritual of and thankfully a lot of the girls we'd been through it loads of times before of you know getting on the bus um, the Garda escort taking you through Dublin to Crook Park everybody beeping and waving when they see it's the Corkamogi team and they have their flags out and you drive down Jones's Road and you have a sea of red and white and suddenly that for me was always when wow okay this is you know it's all our final day this is becoming real because for me, you know, with Cork, the only time you got to play in Cork Park was all Ireland final day. So, you know, and you really had to familiarise yourself with the, the different type of build-up than you would have had to any other game. And like, it was, so it was as much about your mental preparation for the all Ireland final as it was about your physical. Probably even a bit more because you had to take the extra pressure. You had to be able to cope with, you know, what will happen if this doesn't go right or if we get delayed in traffic or whatever it is. So you kind of had to maybe mentally steel yourself a bit. But like you said, the reward then is just incredible. It's a feeling of elation. And when I look at that picture you're holding up of me, I think I've entitled that caption before on my Instagram happiness is because the smile on my face you know it, it, it's it of one of sheer joy and anytime I look at that picture it always brings me back I've got goosebumps <laughs> just, just listening to that and uh, so from 2007 to 2014 you'd have been 27 in 27, when that photo yeah, was taken yeah. and uh, you, in a way, you'd have played a different role in that team. You were a bit more of a senior player and also the captain. Yeah, so I had so I came onto the panel back in 2003, got my first start in my leaving cert year in 2005. Um, we lost the All-Ireland in 2003 and 2004 and then thankfully won it in five and six. Lost, like I said, to Wexford in 2007. I was out um, in 2008 uh, over in Luxembourg and came back in 2009. And from the time of 2009 to 2010 we won the All-Ireland in 2009 but then we lost the semi-final in 10 and 11 lost the All-Ireland final in 12 I was captain in 2013 we lost the All-Ireland semi-final by a point so then to get to that point we hadn't won an All-Ireland in five years and as captain like you said your role changes because you've newer players in the panel you know you have to 
you know, do things that more than just about yourself. You have to make sure that they're integrating well and they're happy. And so it's even in 2014, it was even tougher again because the manager had asked me to play in a position I'd never played in before in my 20 odd years of playing Camogie they asked me to play full back um, and I had been a wing back number 7 or number 6 was the jersey um, I would have worn and so that's much more you know free flowing role You're it's much more in the thick of the action you have a lot more running whereas full back it's, you have to be much more disciplined much more concentrating you mightn't get half the amount of ball but you have to make sure when you do like you're protecting the goalkeeper and it was very challenging it was a very challenging year for me, to be honest, as a sports person, because I was playing in a position I'd never played before. Um, I didn't have time to transition into that role. So I knew I wasn't performing at the best level that I could perform at, but it was necessary for the team. So I almost had to sacrifice my own game for the good of the team. And it's very hard for any sports person or anyone in general coming off after a competition, knowing that you didn't play to the level you could. But I didn't have enough experience in fullback. Now, look, ultimately, I used to tell myself, but you'll get the greatest reward if this works out. You'll, you know, you'll get the chance to, um, you'll get the chance to lift the cup. And ironically, back in 2014, and a lot of people may not even know this, um, in the quarterfinal against Offaly, I broke my hand. So... I broke my hand in the court. I got a belt and broke the bone down the my middle finger, that bone there, and um, was actually in the same year was the Cork Rose. So we had a, a few weeks of a break to the All Ireland semi final, and during that time, then I went back to Tralee as the Cork Rose. Um, knowing I had a cracked bone in my hand so I wasn't able to train anyway. Now I actually still trained back. I used to get up at half five every third morning and a selector of ours in the Cork panel um, was actually back. She had a holiday house in Tralee so he was come and train me and had a broken hand. Had obviously like anything when you break something there's severe bruising. I'd say it fairly hurts. So I did. Yeah. Now I didn't tell anybody because I was like we can't let the you know we were playing we were actually playing Wexford would you believe it or not our, ne- our arch rivals in the All-Ireland semi and I was like I can't tell anyone's broken because I don't want anyone to know I don't want them to know it's broken. So I kind of hid it from everybody and my mum to this day always jokes that when I was standing on stage with Di O'Shea um, I had probably the most ladylike stance I've ever had in my entire life in an interview because I had my right hand placed very strategically over my left and I was standing there because I can't show people the bruise in my hand. And we played the All-Ireland semi-final 10 days later. Um, a, a few of my teammates knew that it was broken now. I suppose I had a big decision to make as did the manager that I had to make sure that I wasn't going to be a liability to the team by playing. Um, but we, you know, I had been able to catch ball, obviously with pain, but it wasn't like my wrist was broken. It was just a bone in the hand. So we strapped it up and I played the game. Um, I played quite a good game, actually. I was I was on one of their best players and I think, you know, nearly I had this adrenaline rush that I was like, you're so close now to getting to the All-Ireland final. You've, you know, sacrificed like so much. You just, you know, go for it. Um and we got to the All-Ireland Final and like that, my my hand was right for All-Ireland Final Day. So when I think back, I'm like, yeah, it probably, again, mentally, it, it just steals you. And loads of people, people play with injuries. You know, I mean, it's, loads of people perform with injuries. You just, you know, it's the mentality. You strap it up and you go until the point where you, you can't go anymore. Um, 
so yeah thankfully it worked out but it's it's always funny that I can look back now and every time I ever see that interview with Dahi I can see me covering my hands <laughs> I'm like oh I remember that actually the only person that knew was um, the escort um, back in the Rose Tralee he was a physio at the time oh, okay. so he spotted right. it straight yeah. away but he, he kept my secret <laughs> oh, you are some person <laughs> and that photo is, is testament to where you wanted to get with mm. uh, a group of people who you grew up with as well which is yeah. absolutely fantastic it was, it was, and it was great fun ultimately So photo number two. So the photo I've chosen is quite a recent photo, but it's one that always makes me smile. It's of the crew in Ireland's fittest family. So it's the four coaches and the presenter, Murray Dronan. And we are all jumping up in the air with just silly faces. We're pulling loads of different expressions because I suppose for me, Ireland's fittest family is, it's a really powerful and positive show. It, I think, reminds people that exercise and movement and activity is meant to be fun and you know, and you can get so much enjoyment out of it and I think it's one of the few shows in Irish television where whether you're 6, 16 or 60 you can sit down and watch it and take something from it and it's it's lovely for families to be able to watch it together because that doesn't really happen that often and I think for me when I look at this picture I think about like the fun that we have in the show but I also think about like the, my career and that I want my career to have some fun in it because you know, when I tell people, even as a performance coach, to break down your day, when people say, oh, I'm really struggling to, you know, find joy in different aspects of my life or I'm really struggling to make time for different things. And when you break down your day, you're probably at work more than you are doing any other thing, including sleeping. So you have to make sure that what you're doing in work has some element of joy and some element of fun. And as well, that's why I'm very lucky and privileged to be a part of that show because it brings so much fun and enjoyment into my life. And I think it reminds me as well to make sure I have that fun in my career because look, with all of our jobs, no matter what you do, there's always going to be aspects of your job you don't like. It's always going to happen. And there's going to be days where you just don't want to be there. You just want to be back in your bed with the duvet watching movies. But you have to have more good days than bad. And, you know, I'm thankful that seven um, for seven years I worked in a corporate environment. And while I liked what I did, I didn't feel it was something I loved doing. I didn't feel I had a passion for it. So back in 2015, I made a few big decisions in the space of a few weeks. I retired as, as court captain and court commodity player. I left my job in the corporate world and I decided to move to Dublin. So, you know, it was probably some sort of late 20s crisis I possibly was having. But... It allowed me then to kind of go on a bit of an adventure with my own career and I was very fortunate. I didn't have any financial um, responsibilities in terms of I didn't have a mortgage or didn't have children to be worrying about. So I am aware that I was quite lucky and fortunate. But I wanted to try things that possibly I loved and I suppose from my time playing Camogie I'd always loved working in, in the world of, of media and I also had loved sports psychology. So I had gone back to, to qualify as a performance and lifestyle coach because I love that idea that, you know, no matter how good you're doing something, you know, your mind can always help you to be a little bit better. And it's about understanding, you know, even what you stand for and what your values are. And and I think ironically, I started the perform the lifestyle coaching um, in the start of 2015 and it made me answer a lot of hard questions. So... I probably hadn't answered these questions before because everyone thinks they know what they stand for. And, and you know, if, say, if somebody said to you, what are your values? Oh, yeah, I yeah, know, I know them. But could you write them down on paper? And I couldn't. I really struggled with it. So it made me start It made me start to think about what I wanted out of my life. And I suppose Camogie had been the centre of my life up until that point. Everything else revolved around it. Relationships, friendships, college, work. I built my life to suit my Camogie. And I suppose I got to the stage where I started gaining um, and growing a curiosity about my own career saying, oh, you know, I 
wonder what it would be like if I could do something different and I'd love to have the same passion for my career as I have for Camogie because you know Camogie as fabulous as it is has only a shelf life for me and there was only so long I could continue to play at the top level and I didn't want it to turn around and be in a situation where Camogie was the main passion of my life and then when that was gone what else did I have so I suppose I started exploring pastures new and um one of the very first jobs that I got when I left my career was and when I retired from Cork was to be a coach in Ireland for the family five years ago and also Marty Morrissey who's a great pal of mine asked me would I get involved in his show on Radio 1 on Sunday evenings um, talking about sport so you know I suppose it ignited a passion within me and I was like I love working with people I love the dynamic that comes from working with people I love the I suppose in media no two days are the same you have to I suppose it's very much like sport as well from the point of view that you have to be able to cope with changing circumstances and um, and thankfully I've been very grateful to have had work ever since and that leads me on to my second photo yes which is you spoke earlier about interviewing and the skills it takes and mm. you went from a sports environment into a whole new different environment we've just been speaking about so this photo is of you on the sideline of the pitch okay yes yeah one of my first one of my first jobs it was actually one of the first jobs I've ever had as pitch side reporter it was with Air Sport and I was reporting on the National Hurling and Football League and I was you know very inexperienced when it came to that and there is a massive um, learning curve when it comes to being a pitch side reporter because you're in the thick of the action so you know you're you're right there when anything happens. You have to be able to cope with, you know, some. So all of a sudden you'll see a red card and you'll have to say, oh my God, like I need to, you know, ask the manager what happened there. Do you think it was a red? Or, you know, you have to be able to ha- ask the tough questions. And it definitely was a learning curve and it gave me a massive admiration for people that do it um, on a daily basis at top level for the jobs because. At times I was I was worried that, oh my God, what will people think of me? You know, I don't want them to get offended by my question and am I any good at this? Because, you know, I didn't know what I was going to be like. I had the only experience I had of pitch side interviews is when I was doing them as a player, not when I was actually the one asking the questions. Um, but I suppose what I, what I do take from it is it forced me out of my comfort zone. Again, it was another thing that I tried. And I think, you know, we're not all not going to be great at everything. But the beauty of it is is having the courage to try something. That's always a message I would promote. And when I work with younger people, I would always say that to them is everyone makes mistakes. Everybody fails. But failure isn't a weakness, you know, because you have the courage at least to give it a go. Like that's something to be really proud of. If you never make a mistake, it means you've never tried something new. So I think that's far more something to be um, upset about than actually making a mistake. And I think I've made plenty of mistakes of pitch side reporting, but it was such an adrenaline rush and it allowed me to still stay part of the action even though I wasn't necessarily out on the pitch and speaking of pressure we're now on to photo number three yes so speaking of comfort zones as well actually <laughs> um, the photo that I've chosen is of um, my experience in Dancing with the Stars so the picture I have um chosen is the very first night I stepped out on the dance floor um, to do my first solo dance. It was I was in a red dress, very probably dancing to Revel Revel um, and it was a tango and it's a picture of me with my dance partner and my back is to the camera and obviously I've been a sports person my entire life so I had a lot of muscle and yes the, like, the experience was extraordinary but for me it really as well tested me um, mentally because 
I suppose I have grown up and I still have it and I'm working on it with this incessant need to please people and I'm always wondering oh I hope people like me and oh what if they don't and what if I say that and you know people don't respond well to it and I think when I made the decision to go on Dancing with the Stars um, I was very conscious of the fact that I was the only sportswoman to have ever been on the show and actually still am um, and I had a very different physique to the rest of the women and I suppose I'm quite short I'm 5'5 five five and I have I sprinted when I was younger played camogie for years so I have quite a lot of muscle in my body and I remember the reaction to that picture of loads of people were like oh my god look at all the muscle on your back and I was quite in, like quite insecure very proud of it but still quite insecure about what people would say about me and because no, you, nobody nobody likes to hear anything negative about themselves um, and I suppose during that Dancing with Sarah's experience well thankfully the vast majority of the um the comments and the feedback was really positive. You're always going to get some people that are just going to say stuff for the sake of being nasty. And I think it really kind of steeled my own mental resolve and it kind of, it made me realise, you know, people are just going to be mean sometimes and nothing you can do about it. But I was so proud of taking on that challenge. And I think for me, it was for younger people as well to show them, not just younger girls, but younger boys too, that, you know, you don't just have to be one thing because you know, up until that point, I was Anna Geary, the camogie player. And then I retired and suddenly I'm like, oh my God, what am I now? So it was showing that, you know, you can have a fierce interest in sport, but you can also love the glitz and the glam and the sparkles and the tan. And you don't have to be put in a box, you know. And especially now, like there's such a massive dropout rate of girls in sport. Um, I wanted to show them that they don't have to choose between, you know, being a teenage girl and wanting to go to discos and wanting to dress up and, and being, you know, the 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 top of your of your game or in your sports arena or whatever your chosen sport is that you can do both um, and I would love to see more girls hanging on to their sport because aside from the fact for me I learned so much about my own confidence and my own self-esteem I also ended up helping to forge a career out of it so it was a big decision for me to say yes to it but I've always loved dance so I it was never a worry about oh I won't know how to dance because straight away I was like yes but it was the worry about how I would be perceived and what people would think and say about me that was quite a worry but it's one of my greatest successes yeah. you know and you know considering that I've played with Quark and I've you know I've left a career and forged a new one it was still one of the greatest things I've ever done because it was totally something new I didn't know how I was going to do I could have been hopeless but I made the best friends after it and I have the best memories I saw it and it was fantastic. Yeah. And I've actually, I have a photo here, which I wasn't going to bring to the table, but I've showed a few people this photo. And first thing they say to me is, wow, the dress. I know. Like, I mean, it, you know, for, to a camogie kit, for anybody, <laughs> I mean, anyone that knows me knows if I could have played camogie in high heels, I would have. Because um, I love dressing up. And, and I I think, to be honest with you, I said something I always joke about is uh, even when I speak on, on Instagram, you know, we all have the good clothes, the good biscuits, the good cutlery, the good room, the good couch. And I suppose I would say is wear the good clothes more often because they'll ultimately make you feel better about yourself, you know. And I think for those 12 weeks, we got to wear the most fabulous costumes. The wardrobe team, and makeup and hair, they just treated us like we were royalty. And it was the opportunity to try on dresses I might never, ever try on again and dance in them. And often at times make loads of mistakes and not know what I'm doing on the dance floor. But it was I'm just, sure you're having a great old time. And, but, that's and what you know what? Everybody makes mistakes. And it, again, from sport, I was really lucky that sport had taught me that even if you make a mistake, you just have to keep going. You can't give up and start and stop and say, I'm going again. You have to just keep going. And so I suppose 
was that that came easier to me than maybe some other people but um, it was the best fun and I think it just always reminded me to sometimes you need to step out of your comfort zone and try new things just to keep things interesting I think that's a, a key message there for anyone and you've been a great guest as well thank today. you so much for having so me I really enjoyed thank the thank you for being on thank the you. podcast find the photos we discussed today on our social media pages all at Life in a Bubble podcast you can also contact us at Life in a Bubble Dublin at gmail.com any messages comments or reviews are really appreciated so next time we'll be diving in with the past winner of celebrity MasterChef. he's also the author of two successful cookbooks he's a tv pundit and a columnist and that's only in the past few years before all of that he was a majorly successful athlete won world and european medals and also competed at the 2008 olympic Games. so next time we'll be speaking to the brilliant david gillick until then, take care, thanks for listening, and we'll see you when David's episode drops on April the 17th.